Hi, Nancy. Hey, Shane. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Shane. Oh, this is this is going to be fun. All right. Uh, we're talking to talk about James Bond. James Bond? <laughs> I love James Bond. Can we can we name all the people who have played James Bond? I think so. Sean Connery. Yeah. Obvious. Obvious. Timothy Dalton. What? Yeah, mm-hmm. there's a lot of older ones. Yeah. Pierce Brosnan. Brosnan, sure. Okay. The Ooh. new guy. Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig. Roger Moore. Roger, oh, Roger Moore. Moore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, My wait, sister dated a guy that? named Roger Moore. Oh, That's look at weird. that. <laughs> I know a guy named... Never mind. I forgot what it was. All right. We have five. Are there more than five? If there no, are, I can't. There's seven. There's, there's seven. seven. What? Yeah, there's seven. All right, we're gonna have to Google that later. Okay, yeah, of yeah. the five we can think of, who's your favorite James Bond character or James Bond, Bond actor? James Bond actor, definitely yes. Daniel Craig. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I actually might go Daniel Craig or Sean Connery. I mean, well, that's the thing; they're very different, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like, Daniel Craig is much more like in your face, aggressive, broody, whatever, and Sean Connery was the very classic gentleman, Debonair. right? Yes. Right. I think I got to go with Daniel Craig too. Wow, we yeah. agree. Although yeah. Roger Moore is a close second. I know. Yeah. He, it's just so 80s. The I'm ones looking, he was in. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to. So uh, not Pierce. No, Pierce. Pierce, was, Pierce looks good. <laughs> um, yeah. I just didn't see Pierce as the you know good action classical action hero. Yeah. Man. He seemed uh, too delicate for me. I'm looking forward to the. Uh, hate mail is a strong word, but like the, the the replies we get on this, just like really. Bring it on. Bring it on. Oh, I'm ready. (laughs) Welcome to the American Geophysical Union's podcast about the scientists and the methods behind the science. These are the stories you won't read in the manuscript or hear in a lecture. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Nancy Bompy. And I'm Lauren LaPuma. Ooh, hi, Lauren. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. Okay, so we we found out who the other other James Bond actors are. Who, Who was it? David Niven and George Lazenby. I don't know who they are. Me neither. No. Oh, okay. Never heard All of them. Right. But we're not here to talk about James Bond anyway. <laughs> um, we actually have some story about science. <laughs> but our story is kind of like a James Bond movie. Ha! <laughs> huh? And that's why we're talking about James how? Bond. How? Who is it? What is it? Well, it's about uh, a secret U.S. military base built in 1959. Ooh. And how is that like a James Bond movie exactly? Um, well, so we're going to hear today from Mike McFerrin, who's going to tell us the story. It's um, about this base called Camp Century. And let's say there's, you know, it's a top secret project involving nuclear weapons. There's soldiers living under the Greenland ice sheet. And there's frozen poop. Definitely Ooh. James Bond. The frozen poop is James Bond. <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> or, yeah. Austin uh, Powers. Or more like Austin Powers. <laughs> yeah. Let's go with that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and just a reminder to folks, we are doing our staff picks. So this is one of our favorites from last year. We hope you enjoy it too. Uh, my name is Michael McFerrin. I am a research glaciologist at the University of Colorado in Boulder. I sp- study primarily the Greenland ice sheet. So we study melt and runoff and snowfall and the various ways that Greenland's changing right now in a changing climate. So um, I guess a couple of years ago you were involved in, you probably are still involved in this study that um, looks specifically at a camp built by the U.S. in Greenland um, back in the 50s. So tell us, start to tell us a little bit about the background of that. Sure. During the Cold War, the U.S. and Denmark put a treaty together where the U.S. could have military installations in Greenland and in turn would protect Greenland and Denmark under the U.S. nuclear umbrella. So if Greenland or Denmark was attacked, the U.S. would come forth to to protect them. Uh, And this is 
this is sort of the broad idea of NATO, the North American Treaty Organization, that these these countries link together uh, to protect each other. And so the U.S. did put numerous military installations on the ice, uh, both on the coast of Greenland, uh, but then also in the interior. There were several radar stations. Uh, there um, were several camps on the ice. And the largest of these installations was a camp in far northwest Greenland called Camp Century. This is the story of Camp Century, the city under ice. And Camp Century was kind of unique. It was not a base on the surface of the ice, as all the rest were. This one was meant to be more hidden. Uh, it was a large base, but what they did is they dug large 30-foot-deep trenches in the snow and then covered them with roofs and then covered it, buried it again, so that you had these tunnels under the surface uh, that extended for kilometers. They, they uh, dug tens of kilometers of these tunnels. Plans for the camp had been developed months in advance. The basic concept was simple. A system of 23 trenches would be dug into the ice cap and then covered with steel arches and snow. Branching off the main communication trench would be a series of lateral trenches housing complete research, laboratory, and test facilities, modern living quarters and recreation areas, uh, the base itself was on the order of maybe a kilometer wide, half mile. So what, what was kind of the purpose of this base? Why did they go to all this trouble of digging tunnels under this massive ice sheet? Sure. I mean, that's it, it, an interesting thing about the point of why was Camp Century there. There, publicly, it was of the, the things that the public knew then and ostensibly now about about it was that it was there for as a scientific research base uh, they were there to discover how to live and work and fight in the cold polar environments in this remote setting less than 800 miles from the North Pole Camp Century is a symbol of man's unceasing struggle to conquer his environment to increase his ability to live and fight if necessary under polar conditions uh, they were doing engineering techniques, research on construction in polar environments, uh, and and they did actually scientific research as well. The first core that was ever drilled through the ice to the bed of the ice sheet was at Camp Century wow. uh, in 1963. It's still the Camp Century core, and it's still referred to to this day. They've since drilled numerous others. So they did a lot of valuable science on Greenland. We, lear we learned a lot about how ice sheets work from that and other expeditions around Greenland during, uh, from the U.S. military during Cold War, the Cold War era. And that was sort of the extent to which the public knew. Uh, I mean, they would also monitor, they would, uh, they had radar stations, they'd be monitoring for any planes or missiles that might come over the poles from Russia because Greenland is, especially North Greenland, is far closer to Russia than in any of the rest of the U.S. is. And that's ostensibly what they were doing. But they also had another project that was top secret at the time, has since been declassified, uh, that was, that's much more kind of interesting. Uh, it, it was called Project Iceworm. <laughs> and Project Iceworm was a, again, top secret mission at the time to which they were testing the feasibility of being able to store and transport and deploy up to 600 nuclear missiles in the ice, in buried silos in the ice, with train tracks linking all of them, up to 4,000 kilometers of train tracks. Wow. 
uh, that could link all these tunnels and silos, and you could actually be transporting missiles from one to the next. The Russians would never know where missiles were at any given point. So if the U.S. got attacked, they could, on very short notice, launch a whole barrage of missiles straight over the pole to, to Russia on And this short is notice. because it's so close. This is because it's so close. It was closer than you could put any other base without directly threatening Russia. If you tried to put a base in northern Norway or Finland on the on, on the border just right close to Russia, it would, it would be seen as a very serious sign of aggression. But if you put a top secret base across the ocean, it's it it was a uh, it was not it was not this, quite the same. But this was all top secret. Uh, even even uh, Greenland, much of Denmark didn't know about some of the activities at Camp Century at the time. Uh, and they were testing these ideas. They actually built a train track in one of the tunnels and put a train car on it. It only went about a mile, mile and a half, any other direction. It's kind of questions what you do with a train that can't go anywhere. But they they were testing the stability of the tunnels. And mm-hmm. if you had a train moving on there, like how, how stable could you keep the tracks? And how could you build these things so that so that you could do that. Turns out that idea didn't work. The ice moves too much. The tunnels close in on each other over time. The glacial ice will press in around it and slowly close the tunnels. In fact, in the Camp Century base, they had to have people who worked full-time just shaving the sides of the tunnels and carting out ton after ton of ice just to keep the tunnels from slowly collapsing their buildings. Oh, my God. Uh, It was a huge operation. Uh, But they found that with the way that ice moves differentially, you'll have some areas of ice move faster than others, downslope, uh, you'll have tunnel closure, that it was really infeasible, just engineering-wise, to keep a 4,000 kilometers of tunnels and 600 missile silos going actively under, under the ice. So that idea was eventually scrapped. I mean, to be honest, from the start, it sounds like something that a general thought of over too many beers. But, uh, <laughs> but eventually it was scrapped. And and not too long after that, Camp Century ended up closing down. About how long was it operational for then? Roughly eight years when they first installed the base. They installed it with all these tunnels. And it was at first running on very large diesel generators. They would supply power and heat to the building and these large diesel engines. And it would they'd spend millions of dollars putting in, well, maybe not millions at the time, but a lot of money uh, bringing in fuel to keep these generators running. And eventually they replaced those with a portable nuclear reactor. The last buildings to be assembled were those that would contain the nuclear sections. These shells were built around the nuclear system equipment only after every major component had been put in place. The next phase was to be the activation of the nuclear power plant. They had a small nuclear power base at the camp. Uh, the U.S. military had six of those at the time. They were very expensive. It was by far more expensive than the rest of the camp, but they installed one at Camp Century. And so for the majority of its lifetime, Camp Century was operational for roughly eight years. But for the majority of that, it was running on nuclear power. The time it was operational, about how many people were there, you know, living, working at a time? It could house full-time up to about 250 soldiers uh, at the time, yes. Mm-hmm. As I said, the Project Iceworm didn't end up happening. They shut it down, uh, and and then Camp Century was shut down sometime later. When they decommissioned the base, they left everything behind. They took the nuclear reactor with them. That was by far the most expensive portion of the whole base. But everything else they left behind. What about the train? The train's still there. It's still there. Oh, train's my God. still there, sitting on a track, buried in the ice. <laughs> uh, 
it's the the tunnel has long since collapsed. You can't climb down and go through the train tunnel anymore. You right. can't go through any of the tunnels anymore. They've been abandoned for more than fifty years. Uh, but but it's all still there. The train's still there. All the buildings are still there. All the pipes. All the wiring. All the fuel caches. All the human waste. All all of it, including the nuclear reactor did run on water, they would boil water, and all the coolant water, they piped in a heated pipe a kilometer away and dumped in the snow. And that's all still there as well. I just, I can't believe that like all this stuff is still there. Like what was, like what were they thinking? What was their rationale? Well, at the time they really thought that everything they left behind would just be kind of entombed forever under the ice. There was no reason at that point that this waste would ever become an environmental issue. And that kind of has to do with how ice sheets work. Most ice sheets have two zones, we call it. There's the accumulation zone in the high, cold interior. On a mountain glacier, this would be the top of the mountain. Uh, it's very cold there. Snow falls. It doesn't really melt away. It just accumulates year after year after year. When you drill an ice core, they typically drill them up in the high elevation areas in these accumulation zones where they can get these layers of snowfall year after year after year, like layers of an onion for tens of thousands of years. <laughs> And the ice under its own weight then flows downhill slowly. And that's how you see these videos of glaciers flowing down a mountain slope and flowing down a valley. And then when it gets to lower elevations, it's warmer there. And the ice does one of two things. It either melts in warm summers on the ice edge or it spits out into icebergs into the ocean. Over tens of thousands of years, the glaciers, in response to the climate, if it's cold enough to grow a glacier there, it will grow until it's reached equilibrium where... The amount of snowfall falling on it is more or less the same as the amount being sloughed off the sides, either in melt or icebergs. And then you have a glacier in an ice sheet in steady state. Mm -hmm. At the time that Camp Century was decommissioned, what was kind of the state of the Greenland ice sheet at that point? The Greenland ice sheet, to their knowledge at the time, was more or less in steady state. It wasn't losing dramatic mass. Most of the interesting studies were how the ice sheet worked, not how it was changing. In the official planning documents for these on, on ice bases that the U.S. military built, including Camp Century, anything that you left behind, and the wording they used was, quote-unquote, preserved for eternity. Wow. And in the accumulation zone of a glacier, now eternity is an imaginary term in this case, but, but realistically, on human timescales, that actually wasn't a terribly bad assumption at the time. If you dropped a marble on that part of the ice sheet, it would take tens of thousands of years for that marble. It would get buried in the ice. The ice would slowly flow downhill, and then eventually it would reach the coast tens of thousands of years later, and it'd spit out into the ocean sometime in the future. Times beyond which they were really concerned about at the time. At that time, it's it's an archaeological artifact. Mm -hmm. So anything you left behind, they, they put under the auspices that it would be preserved for eternity including construction materials, steel arches, clothing, nails, steel beams, prefabricated houses, lumber, food, even ice cream. Climate change was in not a factor in any of those decisions, at least not modern rapid climate change. Like climate change over ice ages was an interesting area of study, mm -hmm. but, uh, but it was a very different context. So then when did climate change become an issue? And when did, I guess, this whole idea of Camp Century kind of come up again? Sure. Camp Century had been there, and folks have known it was there. There had been a weather station there for a period of years that 
just because it was a spot that had been visited a number of times. They kept a weather station there, scientific weather station. This was beyond after, long after the military had left the site. So it was known about. It wasn't secret, but nobody was really paying attention to it in terms of climate. It was still getting buried. In fact, it's still getting buried there today. Today, it's buried under roughly 100 feet of snow. All those tunnels that were just under the surface before, it's been snowing there every year for more than 50 years. Really, since recent climate change came up, meltwater has been creeping. Surface melting is increasing on those low edges of the ice sheet where there's always melt every summer. Well, now it's, now it's more melt than it used to be. And areas just uphill from that are getting more melt than they used to. And you still have a dry snow zone in the middle of the ice sheet, but that's shrinking pretty rapidly right now. And so as you're warming things up, it then begs the question, well, wait a minute, that, that stuff that's buried, what's going to happen to that? And how long would it take till something happens to that? And that's really where this thought of, of taking a harder look at Camp Century came from. So people knew about Camp Century, but did they know kind of that there was this waste there and it could be a problem? Like, like you're talking about like it kind of could be like, a, like an abandoned factory that you see on the side of the road, but you don't know if it's a problem, but it, you know it's abandoned. Right, exactly. People knew it was there, but it kind of just fell off everyone's radar for a while and they weren't thinking about the waste anymore because it was frozen under the ice. But then once climate change started to become an issue, people started taking a second look at it. So a couple of years ago, Mike and his colleagues were looking at this. And first, they wanted to catalog like, exactly how much waste was there. And then they did some climate simulations, and they did some projections and thought, OK, what happens if we continue to emit greenhouse gases at the same rate we are now? What's going to happen to all this waste? And could this pose an environmental problem? The study's lead author, Dr. William Colgan, he started taking an interest in Camp Century. He had actually visited a weather station that was there. He knew about the base, but didn't know a lot about it. And so he started looking into it just out of his own curiosity. Any information he could glean, he was collecting about this, about this camp, Camp Century. And he, he was doing this for years while he was doing his PhD. He was a PhD student at the time. And about it, what time? Of, when, about when was this? Within okay. the past 10 years, Liam's been collecting, had been collecting information. And... So then he decided he had enough information to, that he wanted to study this more directly, not just by looking at old documents, but really go do a much more detailed study of what Camp Century, what was happening at this site, and what the concerns were in a warming climate. So you became a part of this team. Sure. And tell me about your guys' study and what you did and, and what you found. Liam Colgan was a colleague of mine. We were both studying at the University of Colorado. And... We wanted to go to Camp Century and study there. We were going to do some ground-penetrating radar surveys where you can send radio waves down into the ice, and it can reflect off things that are buried in the ice. So you could actually get an extent of where the debris and the wastes from this camp were left and how deep were they and, and how much was there. And you could start to get some ideas of this if you went in there and studied this in detail. Mm -hmm. uh, but it takes money to get up there, and so we were looking for – for research funding to do this kind of thing. And we went to a couple of agencies who rejected it, some on political grounds, uh, that, that this is a very politically fraught topic, and eventually decided that, well, if we can't get funding to do this, we have information already. We have models showing what the warming will be like under different scenarios in the future, uh, and we have a pretty good record of what was left there. 
The continuous flow of tractor trains bringing in enormous cargoes were like the dependable tortoise, slow but steady. But they were our lifeline. So William decided to go ahead and put out a research paper with what we had. My involvement in this dealt with radar, uh, but there's one particular radar frequency that was really good for measuring things on the order of one to 300 feet down. And so I used that radar to sort of scan, except we could just see where the base was and approximately how wide it was. And really the big finding of our paper, uh, not just that there's a base there and that climate's warming, but we took the models, which are currently tracking the, the scenario that we're tracking on emissions models as emissions go up, Camp Century is warming. It's not yet really melting there much, but as climate warms, it will be melting more and more. Uh, we can't say exactly what years. It's colder some years than it is others, but but on the average, it'll get more and more melt there summer until by the end, before the end of the century, it's very likely to be melting out more than it snows every year. And at that point, you're no longer burying the base in layers of snow and ice. You're now peeling them away like an onion. And then it's just inevitable. It's a matter of time until everything that was buried and left behind, quote unquote, preserved for eternity, is laid bare. And that's not on the order of tens of thousands of years. It's not millennia. It's centuries or less, decades. And that's a real concern. There are people who live on the coast of Greenland there that never had a say of when this base was put in, but who would be affected directly by these pollutants now. And so how much is there and what would that do to the environment? So there are some things we have pretty good records on. There's tens of thousands of gallons of fuel left in a cache there. There's some unknown amount of human waste in a sump that, I mean, you can take a guess, 250 people operating for eight years <laughs> creates quite a sump. Uh, <laughs> they didn't cart that off the ice. They dumped it in a trench. Flexible sewage lines also had to be run through the camp. And then there's, poop. yeah, frozen poop. <laughs> frozen Lots poop. and lots of it. There's a lot of building wastes. Uh, PCBs were used very frequently in building materials at the time and are in many of the buildings and infrastructure that's still mm -hmm. buried there. PCBs are polychlorinated biphenyls, and they're a material that was commonly used in building materials at the time uh, in the 40s and 50s, but have since been known to be uh, very dangerous, similar to asbestos, but this was a neurotoxin, and it can, uh, it's, it's not good to have in your environment. Uh, and so they stopped, they, they eliminated those from building materials since then. We'd no longer see them put in buildings, mm -hmm. but they were very common at the time. And, and many of them were in the buildings at Camp Century, and many of them would leach into the environment and into the meltwater and enter the ecosystem if Camp Century were ever exposed and was running off to the coast, which is what we predict will happen in a warming climate. And they, and then there's an unknown amount of nuclear wastewater there. The crewmen were protected by a shield of approximately eight feet of water as they lowered the fuel elements into the fuel storage tank. Later, each of these steel and uranium bars would be transferred underwater to the nearby reactor core. Every step of the testing was meticulously monitored and regular announcements made to the workers assigned to the loading crew. Now, we, to our knowledge, there was no very highly concentrated nuclear rods or anything like that left behind, but this is slightly radioactive and we're not really sure how much was dumped away. There weren't very great records kept on that. 
But all of that's still there. Do we need to clean it up, I guess? What do we need to do? Do we need to do something about it? So right now, it's all still buried. At least as of yet, it's being preserved, quote unquote. As far as we know, nothing's moving around down there. It's all buried under 100 feet of snow and ice. So at the moment, I would not recommend anyone go in there and try and dig it up. It would be ridiculously expensive excavation Mm -hmm. operation. But Mm -hmm. as the climate warms, we need to keep tabs on how much melt is occurring there. When will things start to run off there? And when they do, how quickly will they be exposed? Uh, And when you're at a point where you're perhaps decades out from being exposed, when things are running off and the, the layer above these wastes are getting thinner and thinner, then at some point somebody has to make a decision to go in and excavate and remove these old materials or let them simply run off and enter the environment and harm the people living there. That Many of these communities, they live on fishing, they live on hunting, they live on their local water supplies. These are so very directly affect those communities. Uh, and of course, it's in the Arctic Ocean too, which nobody wants. This is a big environmental concern, just like if you had a large old factory with lots of chemicals left behind. Uh, you know, this is what Superfund sites are, except this one happens to be buried in the ice sheet. At some point, somebody should clean this up. It's hard to say exactly when that decision needs to be made. Those, that's above my pay grade to, to make that call. But uh, in the meantime, the government of Denmark has instantiated the Camp Century monitoring program. They've put a weather station there. They've done some radar surveys. These The, the data's available online, uh, some of the, the initial reports from this site. So there has been some efforts to start keeping a close eye on it, which is good, uh, which I applaud. But it really, monitoring it isn't the hard, expensive part. So that's, that's, those are decisions that will have to be made down the line. Uh, in the meantime, we're glad to have simply brought it to the forefront that this is an issue that needs to be taken care of, and we can't just pretend it's not there, because it is. Certainly there's more work that could be done there to, to bring out in better detail just how, what wastes are there and how much is left behind and how, exactly how deep all these wastes are and where they're located. And that would be a very important planning information for anybody that in future decades did need to go excavate things. But beyond that, there's not a whole lot to do about it now. However, there are other bases on the ice. Camp Century was simply the largest of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, was, there was another base uphill from Camp Century uh, called Camp, Camp Fist Clinch. <laughs> Like Why? it gives you it gives you an idea about the sort of living conditions there. Camp oh. <laughs> Camp Fist Clench. Uh but oh, there Lord. were there were other ones. There's a there's a small base, Camp Tudo, which was at the edge of the ice. It was literally drilling tunnels straight into the side of the ice sheet that is currently melting out. It's near Thule Air Force Base. You can actually walk up to the edge of the ice. And it wasn't nearly as big as Camp Century. There was not a nuclear reactor there. But there are things that were buried in the ice that are melting out. You can actually go right, walk right up to the ice edge and see them. There are still two large radar stations in South Greenland that were around the Arctic Circle uh, that were part of the U.S.'s dew line during the Cold War, the detection early warning system, that were large installations, multi-story buildings with a large rotating radar dish on top that were monitoring for any Soviet 
invasion over the poles, be it missiles or airplanes or anything of the sort. One of them, I've been inside numerous times. Uh, you can still walk into it. Wow. It was abandoned one day in 1988. This is the Die 2 station on the ice. And everything was left behind. Same as Camp Century. You walk in there, there's still eggs in the fridge. There's there's canned no goods way. on the shelves. There's flowers on the table. There's, no way. Yeah, what did the flowers look like? Well, the flowers, they were fake. Oh. So it's just, it's uh, they, they okay. look, when you first see them, you're like, wow, those are in really good shape 30 years later. And then you realize they're nylon. But uh <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there, there's still books on the shelves and magazines in the rooms. And, and it's really creepy walking around in there. The paint's peeling off the walls. And, and you're like, if anywhere was haunted, this would be it. <laughs> Those installations are still on the ice, actually still just in the process of being buried. But it's a similar concern that those won't stay buried, especially this Die 2 station that's already in an area that receives a lot of melt. Okay, but I wonder now, how will like Greenland and Denmark deal with with all this waste like when the time comes well that's the thing is that no one really knows yet how to deal with it and it's it's still a few decades off at least but it's because right now like the best thing to do is just keep monitoring it and denmark is already doing that which is Mm. great um but it's really unclear what needs to happen and when and who needs to take care of it because it was a u.s military base on Greenland soil, but Greenland is still technically a Danish territory, mm. and there's no like international environmental law that no, says no super fun maritime law exactly <laughs> that says like how you clean this up or who needs to clean it up. So it's just it's a tricky situation. It's not something that they ever thought they'd have to deal with. This is one of those topics that is a really interesting intersection of science and climate and geopolitics and unintended consequences. Nobody, I mean, to be fair, when they installed Camp Century, they did not expect it to pollute anything for tens and thousands of years. And by then, I mean, many of the pollutants would have broken down and it would, it's archaeological. And so there, it wasn't reckless abandon per se. I mean, it can certainly be viewed that way in today's context. Uh, and it was a bit of a different time then in terms of viewpoints and how you're supposed to treat the environment. But these, it's been called by uh, Jeff Colgan, who's a political scientist, uh, no relation. He's talked about these as the knock-on effects of climate change. This isn't something that that is an immediate impact of climate change, but the climate change raises these geopolitical tensions from things that were never supposed to interact with our climate, but suddenly are, and are suddenly a concern. This is really the the very tangled web of things that we weren't really ready for in a warming climate. And now we're happening, and now we have to figure out how to deal with them. Well, uh, so bringing it back around, what do we think? Uh, what do you think James Bond would do in this situation? Hmm, I don't know what he would do, but I have this vision of him just driving his little Aston Martin through those ice tunnels that are collapsing <laughs> all the time, <laughs> making yeah. some martinis with the melting ice. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yes. Like like while he's driving, <laughs> just like glass out to the side, <laughs> not even breaking a sweat. All right. So uh, that's all from Third Pod from the Sun Centennial Edition. Thank you so much to Lauren for bringing us this story and uh, to Mike for sharing his work with us. The podcast is also produced with help from Josh Beiser, Olivia Ambrosio, Katie Brondel, and Liza Lester. And thanks to Robin Murray for producing this episode. 
We would love to hear your thoughts on our podcast. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm. And of course, you can always find us at thirdpodfromthesun.com. And be on the lookout for more Centennial episodes to come. As well as our regular episodes. Woohoo! Yay! All right, thanks all, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>